Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. Well, you know what? We're just going to jump right into this. Um, We are continuing in our series of um, the Apostles' Creed. And um, as I said earlier, we're going to be um, going through a lot of different passages so you can grab your Bible and just follow along with me. I do want to say this in advance as we're getting into this. Um, This is is a little different kind of message. Um, and what I mean by that is typically what happens is, is if you're preaching, as we're coming together as God's people, we're going to open the Word of God and we're going to identify a passage and then we're going to walk through that passage word by word, kind of verse by verse. We're going to make applications, illustrations, and examples and hopefully take home some truths from that. But since we're not actually in the Bible, we're going to bring this to the Bible. This is, this is going to feel a little different. It's not going to actually... Um, as I was preparing this, I feel more like this is what I would call a, um, it's, I don't know, more like a, a seminary lecture in that we're going to be going over a lot of um, theological concepts and things like that as a result as I was studying it. And I had a great, a great joy, great joy studying this. Um, it resulted in a lot of lists, as you can see on your outline, a lot of blanks to fill in. And so even though I'm not going to be able to cover everything in detail, my desire was that I would be able to give you some key concepts and then everything that's underlined, I'm telling you this, if you want to explore this even more, everything that's underlined, you can just Google it and you'll get all the top books and you can research it yourself. And if you have any questions, um, especially if they're difficult questions, you can um, email Tony Walliser. <laughs> that's, that's what I do. No. So... Um, Anyway, we're going to begin, um, I guess David Thompson spoke here several weeks ago, and he said, because I think typically what you guys do is, if you've been here for a while, is at the end of it, you kind of read the Apostles' Creed together. David said he did it at the beginning, and that's what I want to do. I want us together to read the Apostles' Creed at the very beginning, and then we're going to, we're going to attack our two sections of the Creed tonight. So um, let's just begin. I think we have the overhead. Oh, there we go. Let's read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven seated at the hand of God, our Almighty. From there, judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the everlasting... Amen. Yeah. Did any of you grow up in a tradition where you um, repeated this in, in church? Some of you did? Yeah, fantastic. Um, as I'm reading through it, you guys may already be aware of this, um, but where it says Catholic Church, it's not talking about Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal, so it's talking about 
all churches that um, where Jesus has is the Lord and Savior and saved them. Either way, this is the sixth week of the creed. Um, to be clear, I've already said this, I want to say it again, we're not preaching the creed. We preach the Bible. But what we're doing is we're looking at the Apostles' Creed and, and we're, uh, we're looking at the biblical principles found in it. And by the way, you may already know this, I may be repeating things that you've already heard, but um, this was not written by the Apostles, all right? It wasn't written by the Apostles. Apostles. Now, let me say a few things, um, and I'm going to be following my notes pretty carefully here because I don't want to get off track. Um, so the things I've studied, um, you may have already covered this, but I just want to make sure. I want to go over this. What is a creed and why is it important? A creed is basically a written summary of the Christian faith. And there are many creeds. There are multitudes of creeds. There are six major creeds, the Apostles' Creed being the earliest. You've got the Nicene Creed, the Anthonicene Creed, the Caldonian Creed, the Canons of the Council of Orange, Statement of Faith of the Third Council of Constantinople, all of them I really know very little about. But that's what you got. And you got different creeds. They're written for different reasons. And the deal is, is not all these creeds are going to actually agree on everything 100% of the time. Let's get back to the Apostles' Creed. It arose very early on in the Western Church, and it should be thought of as kind of a summary of the Apostles' teachings. Basically, you might ask today, what was the Apostles' Creed used for? It was basically generally used kind of as a baptismal confession. So today, if we have a a baptism in our church, um, well, I had one this last week. We have them quite often, but um, the person or I will give their testimony. And then I'll ask them this. I'll say, who is Jesus Christ to you? Now, they are going to confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. But apparently 2,000 years ago, in order to get baptized, you had to recite that whole thing. And if you recited it well, then you could be baptized. The thinking was this, that if you um, knew all this stuff, then surely you had been saved and you wouldn't be accused of baptizing someone who was unregenerate, someone who had not been saved. But the problem is then, like the problem is now, you can say anything you want to, it doesn't actually mean that you are saved. I cannot, this happens to me, Um, there's people in different places and different locations where, um, different countries where I've talked to them and they've, they've said all sorts of right things that they've come to faith and I baptize them, baptize them only years later to have them say, you know what, I, I don't think I was really saved then. So once again, salvation is a transformation of the heart. No matter how long or big your creed is, it doesn't guarantee that you've been saved. But nonetheless, that's what they did. Okay, tonight we are blessed to cover two lines in the creed. And... Um, it's going to be a fun night. I'm just telling you. Let me just, the two lines that we are covering tonight is he descended to hell, referring to Jesus, and the third day he rose again from the dead. Now, the reason why I say this is going to be interesting is, um, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, um, he descended to hell actually isn't in the Bible. I mean, this is the only part of the creed that we don't hold to that's not in the Bible. And so you sit there and you think, okay, why are we going to talk about this? Well, we're going to talk about this because it's in the creed and we want to understand how they fell on this and what it might actually mean. So let's get into it, okay? I want you to follow along with me. I got a lot of blanks there. Um, and basically, when I come to something like this, 
he descended to hell, I just start asking questions, and, and there's basically three questions, but let's get to point number one, he descended to hell. Okay, we got that. If at any time I get ahead of myself because I get excited, um, someone just raise your hand and say, don't even raise your hand, just throw a pin at me and say, dude, you, you forgot a blank, okay? So um, he descended to hell. All right. So here's what I was thinking. If it says he descended to hell, but yet it's not something we teach or can even find in the Bible, three questions came to my mind. So I had the three questions, and I thought, let me answer these three questions. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to answer the three questions that came to my mind when I read this, okay? First question is this. Where did it come from? All right, where did it come from? If it's in the creed, where, and it's not in the Bible, where are these guys getting it? And by the way, here's what I can tell you that I find so interesting. Um, creeds do have the ability to change the way people think, all right? So it is not uncommon. I remember we were going through, I think uh, uh, not too long ago, we're going through um, the last sayings of Christ on the cross, and I remember that. And I had people come up to me and they said, they'd ask me this, um, where, where in the Bible does it say that Christ went into hell? And I would say, well, that's actually the Apostles' Creed. It's not in the Bible. But see, they had repeated it many times and it's kind of, it's kind of sunk into a lot of different traditions. Oh, let me say this. By the way, some traditions remove that phrase from the Creed today. They don't even deal with it. So anyway, where did it come from? Okay. The background's a bit foggy, but I just want, I'm going to read this to you, um, what I have discovered and um, what I spent way too much time researching. Um, there's, I got so much information that no one cares about, and I will never get that time back, but I enjoyed it. I enjoy it. <laughs> follow me here. Follow me here. And I've looked at the documents, some of them, okay? The phrase, descendant to hell, is not found, this is interesting, in any of the earlier versions. The earliest versions that we have, that phrase is not found there. Then it appears in one version in the year 390, okay? So in the year 390, you get descended to hell in there, okay? Then it disappears, and it does not reappear until 650 A.D., all right? So that means for 390 years, it was not in the creed at all. Or it'd be math would be 360, 260. It doesn't matter. You guys weren't counting, so it's good. The point is, for a long time, it wasn't there, okay? And then you get to this year 390, and you can do the investigation. And here's the really interesting thing. In 390, the people who commented on it, they did not take it to mean that Jesus literally went to hell. They took it to mean that Jesus was merely buried. And I want to show you this. This is what I spent too much time on. But in the Greek, listen, in the Greek, the word used in that early version for hell is Hades, okay? Now, Hades, specifically in later Koine Greek, going into classical Greek, carried the meaning of not just hell, but of grave as well. There is a Greek word just for hell. It's Gehenna. That is not the word used here. It is the word Hades. And I'm going to show this to you. Listen, let me, 
Okay, so, okay, so by the way, the only reason I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm showing this to you is to justify all the time I spent researching it, okay? I thought, I gotta do something with this, okay? So check this out, check this out. So this would have been about 390 going into 400. Um, there's the Greek, that's the Greek up there. That's it translated, he descended into Hades. Now you go and you find the lexicon, there's several different ones. Strong's is a very good one. Let's go to the lexicon. Here's what the lexicon said. It says Hades, now notice it says later use. We're talking about latter coin A going into classical Greek, the time period we're looking at here. Um, First meaning grave, all right? It could also mean death and hell, first meaning grave. Okay, what does that mean? It means this, okay? Um, I don't know how it got there originally, I don't know why it disappeared for 290 years, but I do know that when it did finally appear, it didn't mean that he actually went to hell. It meant that he went to the grave. At least that's how they understood it, okay? So that's kind of the first question. Where did it come from? Not really for sure. Not for sure how it got in there. It's not in the earliest version. It comes in about um, 300, whatever, Then it disappears, it's gone for about 260 years, it reappears, and when it does reappear, it doesn't mean, they don't take it to mean that he actually descended into hell. So there about is where it came from. All right, second question I ask myself is this. If it doesn't mean that, what does the Bible actually teach, right? These are just the questions I have you may have other questions. You can, you can send them to me, and I can spend time trying to figure that out too. But this was my question. So I'm trying to figure this, this creed up. By the way, I've never actually preached from something other than the Bible, so this was kind of a, a unique challenge. Not that this document isn't important, meaning that it has biblical facts in it, but um, so it was kind of interesting. What does the Bible teach? That could be a whole sermon, but I'm going to packing into you real quickly. Um, the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus descended into hell. In fact, it teaches the exact opposite. There are three different verses I'm going to bring to you that you will see that Jesus clearly went to see God the Father as soon as he died. I want to present them to you. I'm going to do this rapidly. Um, first one is going to be Luke 23, verse 43. All right? Here's what Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, on the cross said to the thief. Today, you will be with me in paradise. We're going to stop there. This implies that Jesus thought that as soon as he died, his spirit would be immediately taken to the presence of the Father in heaven, although his body would be remained buried here. Now, some of you might rightly say, but paradise may not be heaven, all right? Because people will say that. He's not talking about heaven, he's talking about paradise. Well, that's problematic because you see that word paradise is used two additional times in the Bible. And both times it's used in the Bible, it's talking about heaven. So it must be talking about heaven here as well. You can ask me, where are those two places? Second Corinthians 12, 14, Paul talks about being called up into paradise, and he's referring to heaven. You get to Revelations 2, 7, where is the tree of life at? Paradise. That's what Revelation says. It's in paradise. So clearly, Jesus is saying, today, you thief will be with me in paradise. All right? He's not going to hell. All right? He's not. Another one, John 19, 30. I think this is a powerful place where you see, hey, 
There was no need for Christ to go to, to hell. Look at this. 1930, Jesus says what? In Greek, tetidlestai, it is finished. Everything's complete. There is no need for me to do any additional work. I have been separated from God the Father. We'll look at that in just a moment. And it is all complete. Sin is paid. Everything in the tents and the tetalestai, it is an indication that all things that needed to culminate have now exactly been culminated. And there is no need for anyone anywhere at any time under any circumstance to do any additional thing. It is completely, totally over. It's finished. So there's really no need for there to be an additional action. Then you get to Luke 23, 46. Once again, this is a powerful testimony. The lips from Jesus, he says this. Father, Abba, Pater, into your hands I commit my spirit. This suggests that Jesus expected correctly for the next thing after his death was to be with God the Father. I think that is really clear multiple places, multiple times that he didn't descend to hell. But then that brings another question, which is actually um, not in your outlines, but here's the question I had. Well, what did happen? Well, what did happen? So, so Jesus died on the cross and he doesn't return until Easter morning, right? So what went on? Well, here's what I think. And I think this is what the Bible teaches in every level. I think Jesus experienced exactly what the Bible says you and I will experience when we die. I think that's what's happened. His dead body remained on earth, as will ours, but his spiritual soul went to the presence of God. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with, for the believer with God. Then on Easter morning, Christ's spirit reunited with his body. He was raised from the dead, just like you and I, when Christ returns. Perfect resurrection, perfect body. I think that's exactly what happened. I think our Savior, I think our Savior has done everything that's going to happen to us. I get great confidence from this. There is nothing. Now, get this, man. It's not like... Okay, so, so theologically in all of this, I realize and I look forward to the, the time that um, the Lord is going to take me away or come back. Um, I won't say I long for that day because I don't know it. I, I long, we all do. We long for it on one level. But I'm telling you, um, there's times I'm sitting there eating Jason's Deli ice cream thinking, yeah, that ain't so bad. <laughs> so it's not like a, I have a death wish, but I take great comfort in the fact that when death does come to me, when my good God, great Savior takes me home, I don't have to wonder what's going to happen because Jesus has done everything through everything I'm going to experience. He is my great high priest. That's what I think. So, okay. Where did it come from? That was our first question. It's kind of foggy. We went over all that. Second question, what does the Bible actually teach? That when Christ died, when we die, if you're a believer, the next thing you're going to see is God the Father. Face to face. That leads to my third question. Hey, how many questions do I have in your outline? (laughs) Three or four? All right, well then we'll make that work. 
It doesn't matter. We'll figure it out. Because I thought I had another question, but maybe I'll remember. <laughs> That's what happens when you write a sermon a week too soon. Third question. How are we to understand this? The creed, I mean. How are we yet to understand what it says there, right? How are we to understand this? I mean, I understand the Bible, but it's in the creed, so we have to deal with this. Here's what I think we should do. I think we should understand the creed that Jesus descended to hell the same way John Calvin thought about it and the same way I believe it was originally meant to be understood. That Christ, when he died, his body did go into the grave, but on the cross, he suffered the pains of hell. He suffered the wrath of God. I think he suffered... Man, check it out. On the cross, Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God for all the sins of every believer who has ever lived, had lived, and will live. That means that on the cross, he was paying for the adultery of King David. He's suffering that wrath. He's suffering the wrath of our parents if they were believers. He's suffering the wrath, man, he's suffering the wrath for every lingering look that every man in this room has ever given to a woman that he ought not give. He's on the cross, he's taking that. All of your sin, all of my sin, all the small ones to the big ones, to our children, if God, when he saves them, their sin, all of that is being poured out on Christ, on the cross. He is reconciling God to man. He is receiving the wrath of God. And I believe that is how we are to understand it. On the cross, our great God, our great King Jesus suffered in some way, in some part, the wrath, well, fully the wrath of God, but the pains of hell. Let me just, I'm going to share these two verses with you real quick so you can see this. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us, that's the believers, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on the tree. So you see, the perfect one becomes the cursed one. That's what I think we're talking about, this descendant to hell. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jesus on the cross says, My Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe he's suffering something for you and I that we'll never have to suffer, but somehow he's experiencing the pains of in some way so mysterious that I don't understand, of hell. So when you do read the Apostles' Creed, and you come to this section that says, he descended to hell, I don't think we're to understand it as though he literally went to hell. I think we're to understand it, at least today, how I'm going to understand it, is that on that cross, he suffered the penalty of sin. He suffered a pain, a wrath so severe None of us will ever know. He suffered hell. Hell came to him on the cross. He need not descend to hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, you know, that's the only, I might have shared this before, but that's the only time in Scripture that Jesus never calls God um, pater or Abba. 
our Father. It's the only time. That is the only time Jesus ever addresses God the Father only as God. Why? Because there's a separation. He descended to hell. Okay. So that's the first point. That's our first line. And so um, you might have some questions. I hope that I... My three questions, I hope, explained it a little better. Where did it come from? We looked at that. What does it mean? Or what does the Bible have to say? And then how are we to understand it? So, now let's move on to the second line. The third day, he rose again from, well, from the dead. He arose again. Now, church, this is cool. This is really cool. Because now we're back on Bible, okay? This is, this is Bible here. There, there's no mystery here. This is foundational Christian doctrine. It's something that we hold firm to. Christ, Jesus, on the cross, died, was buried. On the third day, he rose again. This is bedrock stuff. This is what we proclaim. This is what we teach. This is what we have faith in. Now, the question might be, why was it so important to put it in this original creed? Here's the deal. From the very beginning... The very beginning of Christianity, in fact, before, the even ch- before Acts, before the church had even begun, people were already trying to discredit the fact that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. One of the first assaults on Christianity came about the resurrection. You are familiar with this verse, I'm sure, but I just want to read it to you because we've got to see from the very beginning, this historical, concrete pillar of our belief was attacked. Verse 11, Matthew 28, 11. Look at this. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are just to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Very first attack. And I'm not going to get into this too much, but there's, there, there, there's some crazy stuff going on here. First of all, these Roman soldiers, they, didn't, they never fell asleep. I don't know why. It's, they didn't do it. But either way, it doesn't matter. But the question that arises, why? Why? Why so early in the, in the, in the resurrection of Christ, why so early were, early were people trying to attack the fact that he actually rose from the dead? The reason why is this. If Jesus Christ... If they had to acknowledge this, that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead, that would mean Jesus Christ is actually who he claims to be. And if he's actually who he claims to be, that means he is God and you are not God and you need to bow the knee to him and live in light of his teachings and worship and exalt him. But people, people don't want to do that. And if you don't want to, hey, I see it all the time today. I see it all the time today. I see it all the time today. People making lame excuses as to why Christianity or or the teachings of Jesus are not real, accurate, or relevant at all. And you know what? It's really, they just don't want to bow the knee. They don't want to bow the knee. All right? But here's the deal. I want to look at this real quick. And and, um, of course, I studied this before, but I want to tell you this. That called on, man. That called on. That really called on. Because over the last 2,000 years, people have continued to propagate theories as to what really happened. 
Because what you get, you get these guys saying the 1500s, 1600s, 1800s, and they're like, they look at the evidence and they're like, the evidence is pretty overwhelming. It's overwhelming that, that people saw Jesus alive. All right? So, like, well, we, we've got this evidence. No, this is what you do. This is what science does all the time. We got all this clear evidence, all right, that Jesus rose from the dead. We don't like the conclusion that they are drawing about this evidence. So you know what we got to do? We've got to invent a theory as to what really happened so we can nullify these facts. So I'm just going to share. You can, you can Google all these. These are the leading theories as to what really happened. I'm not making this stuff up. Some of you may know some of this stuff. You can go Google it all because it's all really funny. And it's not too funny if it's keeping them from Christ, but it's just funny that intellectual men and women would hold to this. Um, one of the most popular is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. Um, sometimes it's called the resuscitation theory. Anyway, you, you can Google it. It's not, not hard to come by. But what they say is this. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do this quickly, guys, and, and it's just, there's books on this stuff. They say this, Jesus did not actually die on the cross. What he did was pass out. And then you get in the tomb, and the tomb is um, nice and cool. In the tomb, he started to revive. And I guess somehow, you go read the books, he had the strength to pull the door off, attack the guards, and free himself. I don't know, man. I don't know, dude. You can, you can sit there. You can, you've seen this stuff. You can Google these stories. You know, like people crashing planes in the mountains and almost dying, but somehow they crawl out. They never come out looking good, do they, man? I'm just like, come on. Come on. But this next one's even more crazy. The hallucination theory. You guys can read about it. They have all sorts of variations on this. But basically, they say that all of his followers had this mass hallucination to see him. Once again, there's lots of ways to, to discredit that, but the deal is, at one time, over 500 people saw him. It's in the text. In addition to that, that's at different times, different locations. Another theory is the impersonation theory. They say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Some guy went around impersonating him, saying, I am Jesus. That's cool, but um, Thomas done touched him up in the... the uh, the scar, man. I mean, that guy, that guy had to be a method actor. I mean, seriously. I'm going to impersonate Jesus so much, I am going to drive a spear in my side. No impersonation. Some people say it's a spiritual resurrection theory. It's called the spiritual resurrection theory. What they say is he didn't really rise from the dead. What he meant was it was spiritual in nature. It didn't really occur. The only problem is people saw him. He ate fish, and once again, Thomas touched his scars you got the theft theory. Um, that theory holds basically that in that time, when people died on the cross and they were paupers, they were buried in a mass grave. And it would have been impossible for the, the disciples to find that mass grave and then actually see where he's at and all of that stuff. But once again, we know from the text that a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, gave him his tomb, and they would have known exactly where that is. Um, oh, well, actually, yeah, that's the unknown tomb. Did I skip one? The theft theory, then the unknown tone. I'm running them all together. Why? Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. These guys, you got, you, got, um, you got 
Spiritual resurrection theory, the theft theory, the unknown tomb theory. That's the last one. You guys can Google all that stuff if you want to. It don't matter. I found early on in my life, um, I found that um, I probably spent too much time studying things like this when I could have been studying things that were much better. Namely, um, the third question I have. Does it matter? That's, that's, that's the question that I think we need to end on. Does it matter? Like, you get these guys, guys, seriously, you can, you can Google this stuff and you can, you can get books on all of these theories. You can get a whole library on these theories and many more. But some people might be prone to think this, well, what does it matter if he raised from the dead or not? There might even be people who are Christians and say, you know what, um, it doesn't matter to me if you're raised from the dead or not. I still love him and follow him. Does it really matter? And um, that's what I want to close out on. And by close out, I mean I want to take another 10 to 15 minutes, so don't start getting your stuff. <laughs> they had the same question back in the first century. You got these guys sitting there already making, immediately you got people making up stories. And then you got people saying, does it really matter if he rose from the dead or not? And so many people were asking this that the Apostle Paul actually answers the question, does it matter? And I want you to see this, and then I, want, I'm gonna, I am going to try to briefly work this out. Here's what the Apostle Paul would say to anyone who would think, does it matter? Is it important if Christ Jesus actually rose from the dead? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. I'm going to read quite a few verses here. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, if we're saying he's raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you... We'll pause there. How can you, the church, in Corinth, sit there and say that there's no resurrection from the dead? 13. But, or this could be translated... Because, or therefore, or whatever, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. If we say Christ has been raised and he hasn't, we're misrepresenting God, because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has even been, or been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's the church, that's the redeemed, that's the body assembled here tonight. So from this, 
I would say, and you would all go say the same thing, hey, does it matter if he rose from the dead? Yes, it does. And this is not a small thing. But there are six specific things in this text that I, six things, which could actually break down to six sermons, but for um, brevity, I'm going to make it six points. <laughs> this is golden, people. It matters that Christ was raised from the dead. First, he says, the resurrection gives significance to our preaching. That's what he says. That's the preaching, that's the proclaiming, that's the testifying, that's the witnessing. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And the essence of our message is that Jesus Christ dies and rose again. That's what we proclaim. That's what we say. That's what I have, that's where I've been in many places, different languages, different times. I'm, I'm preaching and I'm teaching and I'm proclaiming and I'm testifying that Christ on the cross died for my sins. That he was buried in the grave. He went to God the Father. He came back on Easter. He rose again. If that not be true, then my preaching is of vanity. And I have wasted 44 years. Well, no, actually, I guess <laughs> the first 15, or, or you, you know, I was just in school and stuff. But <laughs> after that, man, can you really waste your life playing with Star Wars action figures? I don't know. But, nonetheless, two, the resurrection gives substance to our faith. It does. Ah, There's so many ways I want to go with this. But our faith is a response to what God has said and what God has done. Our faith is not kind of subjective. It's not based on a hope of something that we think might or may not have happened. No, God of the universe said he's going to do this. God of the universe has done it. And God of the universe says there are implications based upon what I have done, right? And my faith is in that. And there is a substance to it. The resurrection is validation and accreditation to the substance of my faith. Romans says this, he, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, check it out, I don't have it up there, but by his resurrection. That's his seal of approval, that's his stamp. Yeah, it matters. Three, the resurrection gives confirmation to the message. All right. I mean, Jesus said a lot of crazy stuff. And by the way, I've met a lot of people who say lots of crazy stuff. Generally, I don't believe them. But I tell you what, if you kill them and they came back to life, I'd start believing them. (laughs) And that's exactly what the resurrection does. It confirms the message. Jesus says, right, this is going to happen. It happens. He does it. He does it. It's encouraging. The resurrection guarantees that you and I, if he has saved us, will spend eternity with him. For the resurrection makes possible a life apart from sin. Boom. That's what I say. I'll tell you right now. And he said it right there. If Christ has not been raised, what? Your faith is futile. And this is the part. And you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, church, you and I are still in our sins. Yeah, it matters. 
It matters that he rose from the dead because that's where my sins were paid for. It matters. Romans 5.10 says it this way. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, look, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. He's alive. Five. This is hopeful. Well, it's in here too, but uh, resurrection gives us hope. How is that? That we will see loved ones again if they are in Christ. That's encouraging. Don't take the resurrection away. It says that. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if it has not been true. But it is true. And those in Christ, we can anticipate. I don't know what it's going to be like. I got no clue. I just know they're going to be there. I have a sneaking suspicion we're all going to be singing a lot of praise to the great king. Six. This is good. The resurrection confirms that we will see Christ. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we of all people are to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. The resurrection lets me know I want to see Jesus. It matters. It matters. It matters. So, what do we look at today? He descended to hell. We covered that. The third day he rose from the dead. We looked at arguments that it didn't happen, and then we saw what our good friend, the Apostle Paul, had to say. I had some... I thought, you know, all sermons need illustrations, so I had some, but I think we, some of you probably have some kids you've got to pick up. But I'll tell you this real briefly. I know the resurrection is real because he saved me. I know it. I have tasted, I have beheld. I know the resurrection is real because I know men and women whom Jesus has saved. And that is our God. The resurrection matters. Let's pray, church. Father, I thank you for this night, and I know we covered a lot of stuff. I pray that we would be a people who think upon this, that we would be a people who worship you and glorify you, that we would be a people who submit to you and seek to make much of you in everything that we do. We pray that you bless this church. We pray that this would be a church marked as a church that prays for others, that tells others about Jesus, that leverages everything we have so that we can tell as many as we can about the greatest thing we know, and that is Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a sermon series called The Seven Commands of Christ. Jesus gave dozens of commands, and as followers of Jesus, we should obey all of them. Over the next several weeks, we are focusing on seven that will change your life. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses, or you can attend online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website.
You know, there's so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing here at Silverdale. And we really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on the different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.